in for a real treat with today's guest. Food anthropologist Dr. Bill Schindler is on an international quest to discover what we should eat and how we should prepare it. He and his family have traveled the globe researching ancestral diets and reclaiming the power to feed our family nutritious foods. Stay tuned for a fantastic episode with Dr. Bill Schindler. Welcome to A Healthy Bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on The Dish with Rebecca Huff. I listened to your talk at the Weston A. Price conference and was so fascinated by everything that you've done and everything that you've experienced. So to start off, would you just give us a brief introduction of who you are and how you got to be where you are eating like a human? Sure, I would love to. And thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today. So my name is Dr. Bill Schindler, and I am the executive chef currently of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is a full family endeavor, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. And also the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our nonprofit. And the where, how we got to this place, you know, our tagline, our, our, our motto, all of it is, is eat like a human, because my background is actually in anthropology and archaeology. And I've spent literally my life at some level looking and I'm trying to understand and studying ancestral and traditional diets, some through the archaeological record and some millions of years old, and some more recent and historic through the ethnographic record and tried to make sense. And I'm using that to make sense of our current issues surrounding food and diet and health and ethical eating and sustainability and all those things that we're really, you know, trying to problem solve today as a species. And we've I think my my wife and I and my family have really started to at least ask the right questions. We don't have all the right answers, I'm sure, and we're headed in the right direction. But I think we've we've started to at least ask the right questions, which I think is 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 very important, especially in today's dietary climate where we have landscape where we have all sorts of of information hitting us left and right and don't really know know how to feed ourselves. But my own relationship with food is is actually incredibly important as well. I spent most of my life very unhealthy because of how I ate, incredibly poor self-body image, battling weight, bottling metabolic disease until we really took this ancestral and traditional approach. My, I'm, I'll turn 50 in about a month and I've never felt better. I've never been in better health. And my entire life has been transformed because of, of this approach. And, and very quickly, I think just to mention what that approach is, we as a species right now as humans are trying to understand obviously how to feed ourselves. Most of us want to lose weight or feel better or live a better life. And to figure out how to do that, we're asking the question, what should I eat? And trying to achieve that health or that body through that answer, you know, what, what should I eat? And we think that, you know, from that sort of Weight Watchers mentality, if I have this much carbs, this much protein, or I go on this diet and I eat this green smoothie and all this, all my problems will be solved. And even though what we should be eating is a very important question, what I hope we get a chance to dive into a little bit today during this conversation is it's not the only questions that humans need to ask. We are a completely different species. The way we go about eating and getting our food is completely different from every other animal on the planet. It is partially the what built us as a species with these big brains and these big bodies. And in order to properly fuel our bodies, we also have to ask the question, how should I eat? How can I, how should I take these raw materials from my environment and transform them into their safest and most nourishing form possible for my body? That's where we've landed. That's where we're spending all of our time. So our family has a, a restaurant called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, where we put all of this into practice. 
And we also have the nonprofit where we continue to do research and teach these approaches to food. That's awesome. I know there's probably a lot of misconceptions about you. And when people just see, you know, eat like a human, they maybe don't know what that is. Maybe they think paleo or something like that. I know when I first met Christina, I wasn't really sure what type of diet you guys followed. And I think it's interesting because people have these preconceived notions. So this happens to me a lot. My website is that organic mom and people come to my site or they come to my YouTube channel and they think, oh, she's a vegan. And then they see me preparing pork belly and they're like, what the heck? Unsubscribe, go away. Why are you eating meat woman? You know, I mean, people get offended. And I know one of the first chapters of your book, Eat Like a Human, is about the question that you just mentioned, not only what we eat, but how. What what mistakes are we making? What are we well, doing wrong when it comes to food? One of the biggest mistakes we're making is we come at this from this idea to answer what we should be eating and, and how we should feed ourselves. We try to also say, okay, what, what, what is my body designed to eat? You know, what foods are my body designed to consume? And we think we're omnivores, that humans are omnivores and we are omnivores, but not because we have the teeth or the digestive tract to allow us to be omnivores. We're omnivores because for three and a half million years, and I've realized that that amount of time is very hard for, to conceptualize for, for, for many people, but for three and a half million years, we and our ancestors have been creating technologies that allow us to overcome our physical limitations, allow us to do more than just what our teeth can do, do more than just what our digestive tract can do, and transform raw materials from our environment into their safest and most nourishing forms possible for our bodies. We are not omnivores because we are built to be omnivores. We are omnivores because we and all of our incredibly innovative, you know, inventive ancestors figured out ways of, of cooking and fermenting and soaking and sprouting and nishtamalizing and doing all of these things to raw materials to get them ready for our body so our body can safely get the nutrients from it. So that's partially that that what and how, you know, it's, it's not as easy to say, hey, you know, I, I get asked all the time, you know, when I get all, uh, at the end of presentations, okay, I get all the way, but should humans eat bread? <laughs> or should should humans, adults, be consuming milk? Isn't milk designed for baby cows? You know, that sort of thing. And the answer, you can't answer that question the way it's asked, right? The, the answer is, well, let's back up. Is there something we can do to that dairy as adults, even for people who are lactose intolerant, to make it safe and nourishing for our bodies? Is there a way to take grains and transform them into something that's safer and more nourishing? And can you introduce that kind of bread into a diet and have it be a healthy human diet? And the answers to those questions are yes, there are ways of doing it. So to back up just to, and I do think it's very important for people to understand exactly where anybody they're getting information is coming from. I eat a very animal-based diet. I do believe that one of the biggest issues with our modern industrial food system are industrial nut and seed oils. We include absolutely no industrial nut and seed oils in our diets whatsoever. We do use a few oils from the plant world. We use a little bit of coconut oil. We use a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of avocado oil in cold applications. But anything we're cooking with, anything that we're eating on a regular basis are purely animal-based fats. 
butter, schmaltz, lard, tallow, you know, that sort of thing. So we eat a lot of nose to tail animal. We eat, we eat meat, we eat bone marrow, we eat fat, we eat organs, we eat all of those things. So I, I do believe that that is the, the safest way to get as much nourishment as possible into our bodies. But on top of that, we do also eat vegetables. We're very careful about the vegetables that we eat. I love eating vegetables. I love the way they taste. I love the way their texture. I love what they add to foods. There are some plants that are inherently dangerous for us to eat, and I just don't put them in our diets at all. Many plants that we do eat, we do something to, to either make them safer or allow their nutrients to be more easily accessible to our bodies, like something like safe through fermentation, for example. But we do eat a very omnivorous diet in our family, very animal-based, but we do include plants. So so just so you know where, where, where we're coming from. We also have, we don't eat a whole lot of grains. However, we do, part of our restaurant is a, is a sourdough bakery. We make all <laughs> sorts of sourdough bread. So I'm in this weird place, and I know you mentioned you know, on social media for you and uh, some of the people come with this sort of image or expectations of what you are, what you stand for. And then all of a sudden I see you cooking a pork belly and, you know, their image is shattered and they, and they unfriend you or make a nasty comment or, or whatever. It's it, We're in a very interesting place too, because even though we don't as a family eat a lot of grains, what we're trying to do is create for our community the safest and most nourishing form possible for them, no matter where they are in their journey or no matter what their dietary approach is. And one of the great sort of advantages to approaching diet through that how lens as opposed to just that what lens is that no matter what you are eating, whether you are a vegetarian, a vegan, a carnivore, fully keto, what, whatever your dietary approach is for sustainability reasons or ethical reasons or nutritional reasons or all of them, you can do something to those raw materials that are in your diets without even changing what those raw materials are and make them safer and more nourishing for your body. And that's the how part. That's the, that's the beauty of what happens in your kitchen when you're connected with your food and you know how to prepare it properly. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. I mean, a great example is, is grain. So, you know, there's a lot of people now, and, and, and I'm glad we are in the, uh, talking about the dangers of toxins in the plant world. I and mean, it is true that plants are inherently toxic. Every plant on this planet has some level of toxin in it. Some of them will make you very, very sick. Some of them will kill you. Some of them will build up over time and cause issues decades down the road. Some of them are fairly benign, but regardless, all plants have some level of toxin we need to be aware of. And different parts of plants have different levels of toxins. And it, and it all makes sense if you understand what the plant's trying to do. The plant, is, the plant is out there trying to hurt you. The plant is trying to survive, reproduce viable offspring and continue its species. The A lot of energy in the plant world is put into making their babies toxic so that other animals don't eat them and they grow and sprout and create new plants and create new life and all this. So seeds, nuts, legumes, and grains are inherently toxic. But you can help mitigate some of the issues of those toxins by tricking the plant or that plant part into thinking it's in the right environment to support new life. It's in the right environment to sprout. And you can help, again, th with things like lectins and, 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 and other issues that, that those seeds and grains and nuts and legumes have. You can fool it to let its defenses down and make it safer and more nourishing for us to consume. So sourdough bread is a great example. The bacterial fermentation that takes place in conjunction with the yeast fermentation to make real traditional wild long fermented sourdough bread 
transforms those grains into something that's a completely different final product than any bread you can buy at the grocery store. So a bacterial fermentation, which is a part of sourdough, is huge. Fermenting dairy is also a huge piece. So there's a forget plant-based milks and and ultra-pasteurized skim milk and all of those other things that I believe should never be in our bodies. But even just a glass of of raw milk for 60%, you know, I mean, the most high-quality raw milk in the world, for 60% of the adult human population around the world who are lactose intolerant, 60% of adult humans are lactose intolerant, that poses an issue. They can't safely without any issues at all, usually drink any form of, of just straight milk. But if you ferment it, if you take that raw dairy and turn it into yogurt or kefir or even a traditional cheese, you have that, the, that process of fermentation does a lot of things and transforms it into something completely different, which for most people around the world is at that point safe to consume. And one of the things that happens with dairy through that fermentation is the food for the bacteria to help that that fermentation take place is the lactose, is the sugar in the milk. So if you ferment that milk properly, you're not only reducing the lactose, sometimes you end up with a lactose-free final product that is completely safe to consume later on. I mean, and those are, you know, things you can do literally right on your countertop to transform Mm -hmm. those raw materials into something else. Wow. That's just so much to unpack. I feel like I can relate to your family in so many ways because we, we both have similar goals. You know, we want to feed our family healthy. We want to teach other people how to feed their families healthily. And there's just so much confusion and we want to put a label on a particular diet. Everyone wants to know mm-hmm. exactly, you know, who, what, what's the best diet to follow because there are so many diets out there. And the bottom line is we just want to be healthy. So we, we want to live, we don't want to just be healthy. We want to live productive, wonderful lives. We want to be there when our grandkids or great grandkids are born. That That's really it. It's not mm-hmm. that we want to be healthy. We want to be around and we want to be able to do things with our great grandkids. And that I think is the goal for most of us who mm-hmm. say we want to be healthy. So I know that you said that you prepare these foods so that people in your community can eat them in the right way. What does your family eat? You guys all look so healthy. You look amazing. All of you, your kids, your wife, you all look healthy. And I know from listening to you talk that you had struggles with your weight and health from childhood. So what did you figure out? How did you get there? And what do you guys eat? Well, let me, there's a, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> I know. I mean, this is only a, a, a one podcast episode. I know that is a really tough question to answer, but can you give us some kind of sure. a brief overview? Absolutely. I mean, I know people need to read your book and go to your website because you have so much fantastic information, well, but get us started. Okay. Let me say a couple things to sort of create the foundation for this first to, to, to back up a couple of things you said. So a lot of this is all about context. It's all about how you view the world, how you view your place in the world, how you view your place in your life. I have a brand new goal. I have a brand new goal. So I'm about to turn 50. It's hit me kind of hard because truly in my mind, when I wake up in the morning, I feel like I'm in my mind, I'm, I'm still like 25 years old. And then I get up and, you know, go shave and look in the mirror and I see that's not the case, but it, it, hitting fifties, getting 50 it, it has hit me kind of hard. 
I have a brand new goal. And I, this, this state of mind is, has transformed the way I look at the world. And it might be a silly goal. I mean, I, I remember my parents used to have a thing on the wall growing up and, and it was kind of our saying, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll be among stars. So even you create these lofty goals and go to hit them. But even if you don't get there, you're still much better off than if your goals were, were shorter. I recently heard a friend of mine, Anthony Chaffee, talk about the amount of time that he and others have estimated the human cells are supposed to live for. And that number is closer, close to 120 years. So my new goal is to live to be 120 years old. And even if that's silly, the way that I view where I am at 50 on that time scale is a completely different thing than if, you know, most of us are thinking, oh, I hope I make it to 75. Completely different. So number one, we need to set our goals very high. Number two, we need to understand that what is considered normal, we've normalized as modern humans today, is nothing like what the normal should be, right? We call it normal because most of us are experiencing it, but most of us are eating a terrible modern Western diet and experiencing all the ill effects of it. So don't compare yourself to that. Compare yourself to other animals that are living and, and breathing and consuming and thriving on diets that they are meant to consume, right? We don't live to be 75 or 80 years old. We die. We, we spend the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years of our life dying. And that's normal today, right? We are just, this is the way we should be thinking about it. Wild animals run around, live these amazing lives. And no matter what their lifespan is for a particular species, they run around and then keel over dead. I mean, that's what, that's normal for animals. For humans, we run around until we're about 35 years old. We spend the next 15 years of our life complaining about these knee joint aches and our feet swell in the morning and we get up out of bed and, you know, our backs hurt. So we need heated seats in the car and those sorts of things. And we get these massages and all this. And then the past last 15, 20 years of our life, we're sort of just barely getting by. We're happy if we can get on the floor with our grandkids. That isn't something to shoot for. Like that's a product of how we're treating ourselves and the diets that we've been consuming for, for the past several decades. It's normal for humans to live like other animals and thrive until they keel over dead. That's my goal. That's what I want to do. Whatever that moment is that I keel over dead, I want to do it running as fast as I can. So that should be the goal. If you are living that life, then I am convinced Fully confident, no matter what age you are, there are things you can do. And it really, many much of it starts with diet that can help you shoot for that goal, shoot for the moon and end up at the star somewhere, which is a heck of a lot better off than where you are. Our goal should be to live, literally live and thrive until we die. So how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of ways to do that. Number one, we need to trust ourselves. I hope you have a fantastic podcast and I hope people learn a lot from this episode and all the other episodes that you have, the ones you've recorded, the ones you're going to record in the future. Listen to other podcasts, read books, read my book. I hope it's helpful. Watch the documentaries, all of those things. But at the end of the day, I am convinced that if we get in tune with our bodies and are confronted with real, genuinely nourishing, safe food, we have everything inside of us to tell us when we should eat, when we should stop eating, how much we should eat, 
how little we should eat, and all of the things that most of us are spending all this time asking other people for the answers for, we have that inside of us. What we need to do is reconnect with our food and reconnect with ourselves. Try to understand what truly nourishing food is, how to prepare it properly, how to put it on the table. And then the most important thing we can do is eat a truly nourishing meal and set that you know, that reset button. How does your body feel after eating that incredibly nourishing meal? And that should be your goal every meal, every day. We should, every time we get up from a table, we should feel better than when we sat down to eat that meal. We shouldn't be hungry. We shouldn't be overstuffed. We should be satiated, full, content, all of it. And if that's our goal, then our lives are going to completely transform. The other thing I think we all need to understand is that we have this sort of martyr instinct inside of us, this, this idea that to get healthy, we need to suffer. And if we're not suffering, then we're not working towards this goal. It's insane. I mean, what, what evolutionary mechanism would be responsible for making something suffer in order to be, live a better life or get in a better state or be more fit or be able to reproduce better or, or whatever it happens to be. It's absolutely asinine, but that's sort of drilled into us. If we're not getting up from the table hungry, then, we should, then we're not gonna be losing weight. That's false. If we're eating the right food the right way, and it's incredibly nourishing and satiating and filled with the right things prepared properly, then you can get up from the table every single time that you eat, satiated, content, happy, feeling better than when you sat down and your body is still getting into a better, that's exactly how it should be. So we should be eating food we enjoy. We should be eating food until we're full, all of those things. So with that said, what does my family eat? I know that was the question. It's, it's interesting because if you asked me that a few years ago, my kids right now are 19, 17, and 15. So one's off at college, freshman at American University, one's a junior in high school, one's a freshman in high school. A few years ago when we had much more control over what they ate, it would be a little bit of a different answer. But the first part of the answer would be they eat food. And this isn't a throwaway answer. This is the truth. And then I'll dive drill in a little deeper. They eat food that they know everything about. They've either prepared it themselves or seen me prepare it. They know the farmers where the food has come from. They've either seen the butchering or been a part of the butchering. They've seen the things, the jars and the countertops fermenting and doing whatever they happen to be. They're eating things, very few things with any labels whatsoever. So they're eating food that they understand and know the effort that went into it for the most part. They are eating absolutely no industrial nut and seed oils. They are eating again, animals they have a connection to and know something about something about something about the life history of that animal. Either they know the farmer, the abattoir, the butcher did it themselves, something they have, they, they, they know they're connected to. If they're eating grains, they are always fermented. If they're eating any kind of wheat at all, it's always been through the sourdough process. If they're eating maize, it's always been nishtamalized. Almost their entire life, they've been consuming raw dairy. So they went right from breast milk to raw dairy their whole lives. And for most of that, any dairy they consumed was was fermented. And that's about, if there's sugars, most, most of the time, almost all the time, any of the sugars were unrefined sugars. We do, another thing that I think is important for everybody to understand, or at least that I, I believe that I, I think is true, is that the other unique thing about humans is that everything about our lives at some level is, is connected to food. Food is very important to us for reasons other than just pure nourishment. So holidays, traditions, parties, 
romance, politics, everything, socioeconomic status, all of that at some level has an, an interplay with, with food, how we view it, what we think is good food, what we think is bad food, all of those things. And in order to be fully nourished as a human, we need to do more than just meet our biological needs, right? We also have to meet our emotional needs or our cultural needs or, or our ideals or our goals of sustainability or ethics or all of those things. When all of those things come together and are met and satisfied, then we are truly nourished. So I do realize that sugar, and that's the, it was the last chapter in the book, and it was the hardest chapter for me to write, but it's the one that I received the most amount of, of feedback from. Um, sugar is an, an interesting one for humans, especially today. It's in so many parts of our lives. It's such a part of celebrations. You know, I, I struggled as a father for such a very long time. Do I keep sugar completely out of the diets of, of my kids? And where I landed was no. No, we have to do it in the right way. It has to be certainly, you know, stay at a certain level in, in their diets. But what kind of sugar can we use to ensure that it's in the safest, most nourishing form it can be for them? And, and what we've landed on is, is completely unrefined sugar, honey, maple syrup, muscovado sugar, which is completely unrefined. Um, and that's sort of been our motto here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, too. We will not use any refined sugar in any of our foods. But do we put out cookies? Yeah, we have amazing sourdough cookies that are with made with unrefined sugar. If you want to have a cookie, you want to have a treat, you know, I wouldn't eat 17 in a day, but if you want to have one, it's something <laughs> that I feel guilty about. So again, my wife and I eat a very low carb diet, very animal-based. Our kids aren't flooded with carbs. They probably eat less carbs than, than many of their peers, but any of the carbs they do eat have been put through the right kind of process. And it's not a very high carb diet. Again, no industrial nut and seed oils and no refined sugar. Mm -hmm. I had like this light bulb moment when you were talking about our getting up from the table, hungry and suffering in our instincts. And I think that is kind of the product of these diets that have been pushed on us because I think so many of us were born with great instincts, right? We have instincts to survive. And through all of these messages about dieting, we are kind of programmed, I guess, to stop listening to our instincts and start suffering. Because if you want to be healthy, if you want to lose weight, you have to suffer. So we stop listening to our instincts and start following a set of rules and it just exacerbates the problem and keeps it going so that then we're buying diet pills and following all of this stuff. So, I mean, that was crazy when you said that it was just like, aha, because you know, we do, we, if we follow our instincts and listen to our bodies, it, it's kind of telling you how to survive. Right. Well, you know, here's the, here's the image. And I recently started thinking about this and I think it's so, so very true. How many of us have seen like a National Geographic program or one of these nature's things and, and, and you see, you know, the, the hungry, you know, birds and their mouths are open and they're super mm -hmm. hungry and the mother comes back with the worms and feeds them and they devour it or whatever the animal is, the parents bring back the food, whether it's worms or, you know, part of a carcass or whatever <laughs> it is and, and they're devouring it. It's beautiful. And we love it. And we clap. It. But then go to literally just about every single household in this country and in, in, in the modern world anyhow and this is the picture of what we see we have our kids they've been weaned they're ready for solid food we stick them in a high chair they're screaming they're so hungry and we come over there with a, a jar of beech nut baby food and you know whatever cream spinach and, and we open it up and we we go to give it to them and they spit it across 
the, the table. They spit it across the kitchen and they're and they're playing with it. And, and we have to literally force it down their throat, play little games with airplanes and trains and do all these other things and buy all the stuff as babies are us to help get it down their throats. And we are literally programming them to not listen to their instincts, right? That's exactly what we're doing. They don't want, first of all, how crazy is it that they're starving? They're so hungry, they're screaming. They're not starving, they're hungry. Mm -hmm. And we're giving them food and they're spitting it back at us. Mm -hmm. Like, first of all, that's crazy. But then here we are as parents and we did the same thing because we were told, we read the books, we keep giving it to them. We keep sticking it down their throats. This doesn't happen with other animals, right? So we are, first of all, we're as parents not listening to their instincts because maybe there's something wrong. Maybe now that I know as much as I do about spinach, I would never give another human being spinach at all, especially a baby. Maybe they know something that we don't know. And on top of it, we're programming them to not listen to themselves, to listen to somebody else. First, it's listening to your parents. Then it's listening to your doctor. And not that any of that's a bad thing, but what's bad about it is we're programming them not to listen to themselves in addition to listening to, to, to other people. And here we are now trying to get that back. I mean, that's exactly what we need to get back. How does your body feel after you've eaten a salad meal? How does your body feel after you've done a real true fast. You know, those kinds of things, those are the kinds of questions we should be asking ourselves and mm-hmm. and getting the answers to, and then we can start trusting ourselves again. Mm-hmm. Wow. And honestly, if I could start over and have my kids knowing what I know now, because I mean, I raised six kids and I can go back and look at the evolution. You mentioned feeding our children, our babies, you know, their first bites of food with this, you know, spinach out of a jar. Worse than that. What about those boxes of the flaky grain things that you (laughs) mix with water? (laughs) And I mean, it's not even edible as an adult and we're feeding it to our baby. So like, if I could go back, you're talking about being about to turn 50. I'm 51. And honestly, we're having 50s fun now. I love being 50. There's so much great stuff. Like you know all of this stuff. You have all of this experience and it's amazing. And if you feel great because you've taken care of your body, you can still go do that stuff that you enjoyed doing in your 20s and 30s. But now Mm -hmm. you have this knowledge and you also, on top of that, give less of a shit about what people think about you (laughs) and you do what you want to do now. That's so true. That is so but true. if if I could go back and raise my six kids again with what I know now, wow. And I mean, my kids are healthy. My kids have been raised on a similar diet to what you mentioned, and they've been taught basically the same things that you're talking about. You know, I don't force my children to clean their plate, you know? I mean, my son, he doesn't even eat until the afternoon because he listens to his body. He eats what feels good to him. And, you know, one of the questions he had recently was someone had told him eating raw meat was healthier than eating cooked meat. And I was like, yeah, I'm not sure. I've eaten steak tartare. So a couple couple points. Uh-huh. One thing that I want to, I think, maybe, maybe nail home. If you read the book, I go through in the, in the very first chapter sort of basics of our dietary past for the past almost 5 million years, really focus on the past three and a half million years and lay that out, the role of technology and how our diets change when we introduce meat and organs and fermenting and all those sorts of things. And I think that's very important. That's a very good place to start to better understand 
what our diets are like today. Because if you if your view of history is what you learned in high school, it's about three or 400 years old at best. And we were already doing all sorts of terrible things for food three or 400 years ago. We have to step back even further to create that foundation. So that said, the role of technology is not, it cannot be separated from our dietary past for three and a half million years, but something's very interesting about, and this is, this is directly answering your question. Something very interesting about what, technology was required or invented to deal with animal-based foods and what technologies were invented or created to deal with plant-based foods. And there's a huge difference up until the agricultural revolution when everything changes. So everything for three and a half million years prior to 12,000 years ago. So the majority of our existence as humans and also our ancestral existence, almost every single technology created around animals was about getting the animal, overcoming our physical limitations and allowing us to take an animal down from a distance, whether it's a bow or an atlatl, a boomerang, a spear, a fishing hook, a net, trap, snare, whatever it is, allowed us to get that animal. Once you have that animal, that in almost all cases, that animal represents a massive amount of completely safe, incredible bioavailable nutrition. In other words, all you need is a sharp edge to cut that animal open and you can start eating and your body's gonna get most of its nourishment without working very hard at all. On the other hand, with plants, up again, up until the agriculture revolution, this is prior to plows, prior to harvesting equipment and all those other sorts of things, just collective foraging for plants, almost all the technological innovation went towards not getting the plant. It's easy to pick a berry, it's easy to dig a root with a, a simple stick, that sort of thing almost all technological advancement was towards making that plant safe to consume and making the nutrients that are locked up incredibly well in, in, behind these you know, tough cell walls or in a state that our body can't do something with and transforming those nutrients into something that our bodies could actually do something with. So things like fermentation and soaking and sprouting and, and all those other sorts of things, nishtamalizing. So that said, is... In that context, do you have to do anything to the, any part of an animal? No. However, there's two things that I think we need to keep in mind as far as raw meat is concerned. One is we live in a different time today than we did in the past, right? Our, our gut microbiome is different than hunter-gatherers 2 million years ago, even hunter-gatherers today. And the animals we have access to are raised in most cases in different ways. So the safety of that animal raw and the safety of us to be able to access the nutrients in it is not exactly the same as it was, you know, back back in back in prehistory. So it's one thing to con to consider. However, a, a a healthy human has complete safe access to a healthy animal if that's you know if that's the situation, especially when it comes to organ meats. In fact, you know, organ meats, blood, fat is more easily, in almost all cases, more easily digestible by the human body without doing anything to it whatsoever. Meat, red meat is a little bit different. And here's the caveat. So there's a there's a fantastic primatologist by the name of Richard Rangham. He's from Harvard. He's a great guy. He wrote a great book about fire about a decade ago. And I was having breakfast with him one time and, and talking to him about this very same question and, and you know, do we have to cook our, because his whole, all of his research is about, you know, cooking food. Do you have to cook meat? And what his research has shown is that a hunk of raw 
red meat is takes a lot of work for the human body to completely break down and get all the nutrients from. It can be done and, and it happens. But if you want to optimize the bioavailability of a hunk of red meat, there are a couple things you can do. Number one, mechanically breaking it down helps a lot. So instead of taking a hunk of raw red meat and chewing it, slicing it or chopping it up or grinding it saves our body a lot of work. And if you think about it, if you go to a really nice restaurant and order raw meat, which is on the menu, it's either tartare or carpaccio. Carpaccio, it's sliced super thin and tartare is it's ground up like hamburger meat. So number one, physically breaking it down some way like that, cutting it, slicing it, grinding it, whatever, it certainly helps. Secondly, what he's found is that a little bit of cooking also helps release make available to our bodies with less work some of the nutrients. So overcooking goes the opposite way. So that's what you never order a, a well-done steak, for example. In my mind, the most incredibly bioavailable way to access all the nutrients in red meat is with like a medium hamburger. I mean, you've, you've ground it so that you've mechanically broken it up. You've hit it with a little bit of heat, but not too much. And then, you know, that that's a completely different thing than just eating a hunk of raw red meat. That is fascinating and such good news because that's exactly how I like to eat mine. I do like a, a meat, I guess, just above rare steak. But, yeah, maybe um, medium rare is even better. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So overcooking. So cooking well done our meat makes it harder to digest and assimilate. It, in certain foods, it, it does. And so there's there's certain issues, certainly with meat. And according to him, overcooking it then makes it, you know, goes a little bit too far. And really, but we have to also remember as we're sitting here having this conversation, any of the ways, raw hunks of meat, ground up fresh meat, you know, raw meat, cooked burgers, medium well, wells, steaks, all of it, you know, there's little nuances with how to maximize that. But in every case, it's more nutrient dense and bioavailable than say, a head of cabbage <laughs> or something like that. So there are ways to optimize it, but do also remember that this is incredible nourishing food that any way that you have, it would be great. But to me, and I just love hamburgers. So maybe I've kind of justified it that way, but a ground, <laughs> ground up lightly cooked hamburger is probably your body's probably working the least amount to access the nutrients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to go back just really briefly before we move on to something you said about spinach, because, you know, people want to eat spinach all year long. And I made this mistake in the past as well, back, I don't know, 20 ish years ago when I bought into the green smoothie kind of movement, which I haven't touched a smoothie in probably 17 years or something, but I used to drink spinach smoothies. And I didn't realize the oxalates. Can you just briefly explain yeah. why you were saying that about the spinach? So I spent a large part of my career studying how to detoxify plants, traditional ways of detoxifying plants. And there's some amazing ways of doing it. And there are a lot of ways to mitigate the issues that come from certain plant toxins and still safely consume the plants that had those toxins because you've detoxified them or, or done something to, to the toxins in there. The one toxin that I haven't been able to find any form of, of meaningful detoxification, detoxification strategies is for the toxin oxalates. And thankfully, more people are talking about this today than, than they ever have. The uh, oxalates were really first discovered, the dangers of them were discovered in the late 1800s. 
And then for some reason in the early and mid 1900s, they sort of just fell off the radar. And this is the same time when a lot of high oxalate containing plants started to appear more and more on our grocery store shelves, spinach being probably the worst offender. And unfortunately, for some reason, in addition to our parents and our doctors, we were taught to listen to a cartoon about how we should be feeding ourselves. And Popeye really transformed spinach into this thing that you know everybody should be eating. And it got this label as a superfood. The problem with labeling something as a superfood, which is a silly label for any food whatsoever, is that we have this false perception that some of it is good, more of it is better. And if I want to be superhuman, I eat superfoods and I eat them all the time. And this is all happening at the same time when we now have um, the ability to grow plants year round in certain parts of the world. And if even when we don't, we have the ability to ship plants from all over the world in the grocery store. We've taken the seasons out of the grocery store and these superfoods, things like spinach or almonds are now available all year round in the grocery store with this label of superfoods and we're eating massive quantities of them. Oxalates quickly. I'm not the expert on oxalates. My go-to always is a woman named Sally Norton, who's a good friend of mine and fantastic. Her book, Toxic Superfoods, I've read it cover to cover. It's full of great information. But let me just say a few words about oxalates, because for those of you who are experiencing any of the stuff we talked about earlier, joint pain, swollen feet, you know, pain when you shouldn't be, a whole bunch of other things, then there's a very good chance oxalates are either causing it or one of the things that may be causing it. Remember, plants are trying to protect themselves so that they can reproduce viable offspring. That's their sole purpose of creating these toxins. The Well, not sole purpose, but it's one of the reasons. Oxalates do a lot of different things, but one of the things is a protective mechanism. And under a microscope, they look like you know, microscopic bits of shards of glass. And when you consume them, our body, a healthy human body, can deal with a certain amount of these oxalates daily. But anything above that number, and that number is actually quite low, our body then takes and realizes how dangerous these, these shards of glass are and se puts sequesters them and puts them in different parts of our body, typically in our extremities, like our feet or our hands, sometimes in our organs, sometimes in our organ tissue, but sometimes in the organs themselves. So kidney stones are almost always a result of oxalates. They'll also store them in areas that we've had some sort of trauma in the past. So if you've been injured, quite often the oxalate can get stored there. They're often stored in the corneas and they build up over time. One of the biggest dangers of oxalates is that we don't realize what's happening to us as we consume them. We eat some spinach or think we're being healthy. We don't necessarily feel any ill effects the next day. And then the next day and the next day and days turn into weeks, into months, into years. And sometime down the road, we have something happen to us where these oxalates present themselves. And then it's hard for us to make that connection between that bowl of spinach you've been eating for 10 years and, and right. So then the next thing that happens is if some of us who realize that oxalates are as dangerous as they are, then immediately remove them from our diets. We feel incredible for a couple of weeks. And then our bodies realize that, hey, they're not, we're not ingesting these oxalates any longer. And then start to release the stored oxalates, which puts us in a massive state of either pain or discomfort or sometimes- Get them out of storage. Dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let me just go through a couple food or a couple things that are often caused by oxalates and then say something about the foods that they're in. And then we can move on from oxalates. I will tell you that I changing my diet about 20 years ago, transformed my life and getting oxalates out of my diet about five years ago was just as transformative. So gout, 
is there's four types of gout. We only talk about one in the in the medical world today, which is uh, uric acid. But there's a type of gout called pseudogout, which has the same exact symptoms and is caused by oxalates. The, one of the problems is if you are diagnosed with gout and haven't been tested for uric acid, get tested for uric acid because the diet that they put you on thinking it's a uric acid type of gout is exactly the wrong diet you should be on if it is an oxalate related gout. Kidney stones are almost always oxalate related. If you've ever got those little bumps on your fingers or somewhere that those those calcium deposits on your, on your bones, almost always oxalates. Cornea issues, joint pain, arthritis, swelling. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. There are certain, I am certainly not an expert on this, so I'm not going to speak about it at all, other than knowing that there are certain female, specific things related to females that can happen with pain, especially in the pelvic region as, as a result of this. It is, if you have an issue caused by oxalates and change your diet, you will literally transform the rest of your life. But there are safe ways to do it. So again, I, I would I would point anybody towards people like Sally Norton. The other problem is they're very hard to detect. So doctors, the issues that I had, I would I continuously went to doctors to and they kept making me feel like I was crazy, that I shouldn't be feeling the pain and those things weren't happening to me. And they were. And they all went away when, when I took oxalates out. So high oxalate containing plants are things like almonds and spinach are probably two of the highest in the grocery store. Poppy seeds and sesame seeds are off the charts high. Nuts in general are high, but some are higher than others. So almonds are super high. Pecans and pistachios are on the low end. Seeds are almost always high. So poppy seeds and sesame seeds are the worst, which, and for those of you who are eating hummus, careful because tahini is made entirely of sesame seeds. So on the low scale, aside for, for seeds are sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. Spinach, Swiss chard, rhubarb, and beets are incredibly high, but things like arugula are incredibly low. So this doesn't mean you can't enjoy your plants and your, your things. You just have to be careful about the ones that you are consuming. And consume them basically when they're in season instead of all year long. Yeah. And that, that's the other and I mentioned it briefly, these are plants that if we kept them in our diets when they were around, right, when we grew them, you know, spinach would grow in your in the ground in your backyard for like two weeks, right? And then you wouldn't have it the rest of the year. So if you ate that plant, then it's not that big of a deal. Maybe you'd get a high oxalate diet for two weeks and then you'd have a low oxalate diet for 50 other weeks of the year or, or whatever. But we've taken those limiting mechanisms out. And not only, so one limiting mechanism is seasonality. We've got rid of it in the grocery stores. Another limiting mechanism is price. So it used to be when I was a kid, we had nuts, like real nuts, like almonds and walnuts and pecans and things at Christmas. Mm -hmm. I remember going to my grandmother's house and we had them at Christmas because they were expensive and they always appeared in a bowl with the shell on it and a nutcracker. And we'd crack them and I'd spend all afternoon cracking and I'd make a handful of nuts out of the whole thing. Now we've taken all the processing away or the processing is done. So we can buy a bag of nuts and we can buy them for 10 bucks at Costco, a huge bag of almonds and sit there and snack on them all day, which was where my issue came from eating almonds every day. Another quick side note for anybody that is, is doing it. We are now seeing amazing in a, in a negative way things happening to our kids because of these limiting mechanisms being gone and, and what we're doing with their diets. For the first time ever, there are kids presenting with kidney stones under the age of 10. And it's happening in households where the kids are drinking massive quantities of almond milk. The oxalates are in almond milk. They're in the nut milks. 
as a side note, I don't think we should be eating any industrial nut and seed oils. But as far as oxalates are concerned, they don't come through in the oils and they don't come through in the extracts. They do come through in the milk and they're in the nuts and they're in the nut flours. So if you want that sort of almondy flavor in something, but you don't want the almonds, you can put the extract in, get that sort of hint of that almond flavor, but Mm -hmm. not get the oxalates at the same time. That's a good point. Although I think the reason why people are consuming so many almonds in the almond beverages is not because they taste so great, because they're being told that it's healthier than drinking cow milk. It's not. And I'll tell you this. So this is this is where we've landed. And maybe this is a nice way to talk about how our family eats and how we feed the community here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. We are not, we haven't bought into that substitution approach to diet. I mean, certainly there are reasons to be on a low carb diet and and we eat a a fairly low carb diet. Anyhow, there's there's wonderful reasons to it, but a lot of people want to go on a low carb diet, but still want all those foods that they're giving up. And their way of doing that is replacing flour with almond flour or replacing sugar with, with fake, you know, chemical sugars and all these other things. That's something we have have resisted and, and do not do in our house and do not do here at the modern stone age kitchen. What we've landed on is, hey, if we're going to eat this food, let's make sure it's the best, highest quality ingredients possible. And that we're uh, transforming those ingredients by using traditional time-tested methods to transform it into something that's as safe and nourishing as it can be. So again, if you're going to eat bread, let's get the highest quality flour we can get and put it through the sourdough process, period, right? Instead of trying to make it with, 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 you know, fake keto sugar and, and, and all these other sorts of things. Again, and, and when we do that replacement thing, we fool ourselves into thinking that it's healthier, but there's a whole, and maybe our waistline is shrinking, right? Maybe we look better in the mirror, but I promise you there are things going on inside of your body that you will figure out in the coming months or years if you wish you hadn't, hadn't used those fake substitutions for. Mm-hmm. That is such an important message. And I think I really am glad that you brought that up. I actually used tried to do the keto diet, but I couldn't stand all of the fake like substitutions, you know, that kind of thing with the almond flour and the, all the white powders and stuff. And that's kind of why I transitioned away from doing that kind of thing, because the replacements I felt like weren't really all that much healthier. And my husband had been on energy drinks for a while. He, Mm. because he had a really demanding job and he was getting on these energy drinks and he had been on them for several years. And I was like, you know, the problem is what you eat and what you really need to do is just go on a low carb diet and eat more meat and more fat and you will have enough energy to get through the day. And so he listened to me, did what I said, because he's such a good sport. He does whatever I tell him as far as food goes. He trusts me like he would just take a pill if I gave it to him without asking me what it was. poor guy. But anyways, he, he trusted me and he listened Mm -hmm. to what I said and he got off of energy drinks and he's able to get through his day and not feel so tired and stuff because what he did was just eliminated the carbs. And I mean, like we're not on a zero carb diet. We're not even really on a low carb diet, but he stopped depending on uh, breads and things Mm -hmm. like that, or potatoes. And, you know, anyways, that's kind of a side point, but I will say that following that low carb diet and increasing the fats and increasing the amount of protein. He ate good, healthy protein from 
uh, grass-fed beef mostly is what helped him to get off of energy drinks. But anyways, I wanted to say, because you mentioned that uh, your restaurant, and I wanted to talk just really briefly about that. You sure. uh, said that you were basically offering sourdough and things like that. And I do see on your social media, the delicious mouthwatering things that you're cooking up at your restaurant there and sharing for the community. I guess it's kind of a gateway because once you get people in there and you show them how to prepare these foods, not just what to eat, but how to eat it. And then they can transition a little bit away from maybe even eating so much sourdough into eating what you and Christina and your family eat and how you eat it. So I I wanted to let you tell me a little bit about your restaurant, because I know that you received the 12 Spoons Award. And I thought that would be a great. Yeah, I know. That's so amazing. And so I thought that would kind of be a great place to end this episode. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, first off, the the Twelve Spoons Award is is awarded by the Western Price Foundation, and they have twelve criteria that they rate restaurants and food facilities by. Things like: do they use any industrial seed oils? Do they, you know, source at least some pastured animals and those sorts of things? And it, we didn't even know that the Twelve Spoons was a, a, around, and it is a powerful tool. So check it out; it's amazing. And then we were awarded, we're the first place in the world actually to be awarded a full 12 spoons. So we met every single criteria they had. And in fact, it was so wonderful. Now, I, I will be honest, the Weston Price Foundation, the work of Weston Price and the Price Pottinger Foundation have been huge influences on everything that I've done since I became aware of them about 20 years ago. And it was almost like the 12 spoons was written for us because that's the, those are the things we stand on. So very quickly, uh, this started as a sourdough bread business that my, my now 19-year-old daughter initiated at the beginning of COVID. And I was teaching at Washington College. I was a professor of archaeology and anthropology. My wife was the head of special ed at a nearby county. And we started producing sourdough bread for the community because that was the only legal thing that we could do out of our house that was in line with anything we believed in. And then we were able to come into our current facility here in Chestertown, Maryland. And once we got into a commercial kitchen, could do so much more of what we what we believe in. We make real familiar food in the traditional way, using high quality as local as possible ingredients, and believe that we are nourishing the community with food that they can relate to with the most the healthiest, safest, safest versions possible. So we do all sorts of foods. The thing, These are the things we do when we don't do. So we don't use any refined sugars whatsoever. We don't use any industrial nut and seed oils whatsoever. We source our animals as locally as possible and do mostly completely in-house butchering using a nose-to-tail approach. We Any wheat or grains we have go through the full sourdough process. Any maize that we have is goes through the full nishtamalization process any nuts or seeds or legumes that we that we serve in any form have been soaked and dehydrated before they've been put into any dish that we have we concentrate on high quality animal fats and so we do think and we make everything 100% from scratch in house the only there's only two things that we don't make so there's no two ingredients put together by anybody but us, except for two of our ingredients. One is our old base seasoning that we use that we're working on doing that. And the other thing, believe it or not, it's so funny um, talking to you right now, because downstairs we're, we're, we're learning to make it. The only other food that we don't 
do entirely from scratch yet is chocolate because chocolate actually already has two ingredients put together, right? It's got the chuck and it's got the whatever kind of sugar. So we are right now, I have two kilos of sugar in that's actually gr grinding up for the next 24 hours that we're going to add some unrefined sugar to for an event we're doing this weekend. So we're working on that, but everything else is made from scratch. We do wood-fired pizzas every Friday. It takes us all week to make those pizzas. We make all the pepperoni. We make all the sausage. We make all the cheese. We do a fully sourdough crust. So you can come in and have these pizzas. We do sandwiches and soups during the day. Now, one sandwich, for example, I really love. We're going to have it again next week. We call it the whole hog hoagie. It was the half hog hoagie, but now it's whole hog hoagie. And we get a local pig. I bring it in. I butcher it. We make all the meats for that Italian sub from the same animals. We make the mortadella, the ham, the capicola, and the salami all from the same animal. We make the provolone for it from milk from a, from a local dairy. So, I mean, imagine biting into an Italian sub where the entirety of that came from, you know, just, just a few miles away and one single animal. We make the vinegar, we make the sourdough bread, you know, all that. We celebrate local farmers and we educate through all of the food that we serve. Even though we love to nourish the community, our primary goal is to empower the community. So we have a nonprofit, which is where this I'm doing this podcast from upstairs, which is our teaching kitchen. Our What we really want to do is empower people to do all of these things in their own homes. And they can. I mean, all of these, all of these foods that you or anybody is serving their family, you have the ability to make in your own kitchen. And if you don't, I mean, I'm not saying you want to, I'm not saying you have the time or whatever, but you you have the ability to do it if you, if you so chose. If you are serving them a food that can't be made in your kitchen, then you should probably question whether or not they should be eating it. I mean, if it takes a test tube or a million dollar machine in order to make it or somebody in a lab coat, then I don't really consider that food. So upstairs, we do all sorts of classes, butchering classes, cheese making classes, sourdough classes. We have online classes. We have on-demand classes. We still continue to conduct all sorts of research. So our goal is to empower people to do it at home. And if they want to come in, then we'd be very happy to, to make the food for them as well. Awesome. Yeah. I was just about to say, I don't want to imagine tasting that sandwich. I'm going to get in my car <laughs> and come up there. I want to taste that sandwich. I'm definitely going to do that. I actually started trying to make cheese myself recently and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's not as hard as I thought it would be. So. It is. I, I, two things very quickly with the cheese. I'd love to mention, I know we, we have, we have to end this soon, but it's going to save everybody a lot of time and headache. One is if you have an opportunity to take a class, please do it. Come here and take class with us, take a class online with us, take class with somebody else. It really helps you get over cheese making is just not as intuitive of certain other things. We many of us didn't grow up in making those sorts of things as easily on our countertops. So that'll help. There's a I go over dairy in one of my chapters of the book. If you want a whole book dedicated to traditional cheese making, my my recommendation is David Asher's book called The Art of Natural Cheese Making. It's fantastic. But one thing to be careful of, if you're going to take the time to learn to make sauerkraut or cheese or butcher ham or whatever it is, you obviously are interested in as much of the process as you are as the final product. And if that's true, be very careful with Google searches because for most cheeses, especially if it's mozzarella or even ricotta, which is what most people want to make anyhow, or, the the recipes online 98% of them are fake they're not they're they're making a product that seems like a similar thing 
but hasn't gone through the right processes to transform it into what it really should be. Certainly the flavor and the texture and the appearance of the final thing is close, but not the same, but from a health perspective, and I'm sure people listening to this are listening because they're worried about the health. It's a completely different food. It hasn't gone through the fermentation process. Most of your Google searches for mozzarella show a 30 minute mozzarella recipe. Do not do it. It is a fake cheese. It is not a finished product. If your ricotta cheese recipe says, start with a gallon of milk, then stop. It's a fake recipe. I mean, ricotta is actually made from the whey left over from making cheeses like mozzarella. So do your homework. Again, there's a lot of places you can get information and making cheese. You will be able, once you learn how to make cheese, you'll be able to make better cheese in your kitchen than you can buy at the grocery store. Very good. I have not tried ricotta, but I think that this is really great information and I want to take your cheese course. So if you're listening, I'm going to put the links in the show notes to Bill's courses. I know you have several courses. Just briefly tell us about where we can find more information. If we want to take some of your classes, read your book, come to your restaurant, give us the lowdown on where we can pick up what you're putting down. Sure. So uh, our, our our restaurant, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, you can find out information about that at modernstoneagekitchen.com and uh, follow us on social media at, at Modern Stone Age Kitchen. For any of the educational related pieces, you would follow me at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler on social media. And the website is eatlikeahuman.com. And you can find information about the book there. You can order the book there for the same price you can get on Amazon. And we'd be happy to sign it and send it off to you if you'd like. And all the information about the courses are on there. And we're continuously updating them. We offer a lot of different types. We do a lot of one-day, single-day classes like cheese making or fermented dairy or sourdough bread, that sort of thing. And we just started doing, and they've been very successful, and I love them, deep dives, intensive classes that are that are four days long. And you get an introduction to everything from fermented vegetables to fermented dairy to cheese making, sourdough bread, sourdough mother, and an introduction to home butchering as well. So we have the first, we just finished one, the one in January is sold out, but we just posted another one for March. Mm -hmm. I saw those. Now those are the four day classes. Those are in person, right? Oh, they're in person here. I'm sorry. Right. There are all, yeah, those are in person here. Mm -hmm. um, we have a beautiful teaching kitchen and a beautiful little town on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And we're only very easy to get to. We're only about an hour and a half in Philadelphia and Baltimore and DC and a few hours from New York City. If you're looking for online resources, we do, we have some pre-recorded classes as well on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So if you're listening, make sure to check the show notes. Like I said, Dr. Bill has so much information on his website and I'm definitely going to take one of his cheese courses. So go ahead and join me for that. I'm going to get in there and find out what I might be doing wrong when it comes to making cheese. So I just want to extend my sincere gratitude for you taking, I know you have so many things that you're doing. You're so busy. So I just want to say thank you for coming to educate us. It is truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.